and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we are going to be discussing Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, reading Heathcliff as a person of colour, and a little-known Victorian novel called Tilney Hall, which is so little-known, I've never heard of it until reading this out to you all now. So... <laughs> I'm really excited about that. (laughs) And before we dive in, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest for today, who is in the Zoom with us right now, lurking behind the green curtain. (laughs) Indeed. Now, if you're a regular listener to Bonnet to Dawn, then you'll be familiar with our friend, Dr. Lydia Craig. Lydia recently finished her PhD in 19th century studies at Loyola University Chicago, studying depictions of Social Upstarts in the 19th Century Novel, which we did an entire episode about if you check out season 5.3, episode one. Her work on class, gender, and online database research has appeared in such publications as Dickens and Women. Dickens and Women. I just, I think it should just be be Dickens and Women. That's already loaded. It's loaded. That was already done by Michael Slater. That's why they made it (laughs) reappeared. Amazing. Dickens and Women Reobserved, Victorians, and Dickens Quarterly. Hello, Lydia. Hi, how are you guys doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, Lydia, I've got a burning burning question for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were uh, a cat in the 2019 hit cinema masterpiece Cats, which uh, would you be and why? Oh, God. I actually have avoided that entire musical because my mother used to sing it to me. Um, and of course, I know about the connection to Elliot, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I've just always stayed away from it. So I honestly don't know the names of any of the cats. And when oh, I saw, really? No. And when I saw the um, when I saw the trailer come out recently for the Taylor Swift, um, you know, version, <laughs> I, just I love that you're attributing it to Taylor Swift. I think I more just, people I was, should. Oh, I was <laughs> overcome with horror. I can't describe to you how disgusted I was by the sight of these CGI <laughs> cats. So this is actually a phobia that you've brought up. Thank you. Um, I'm going to give you three to choose from, though, because we do need to know. Um, so would you be um, Rumple Teaser, Jenny Any Dots, or Scrimble Shanks? I feel like Scrimble Shanks, just the name, mm. is more of my, bo- yeah. my vibe. Yeah. That's good. Great. Cool. The people want to know, and now they know. I mean, <laughs> Hannah has a, what, how many slides are in it? 46 slide PowerPoint yeah. presentation <laughs> on the movie Cats. Oh, and oh, Lord. she's always just trying to like get it in <laughs> there. <laughs> I'm just trying to get it in there because you spend eight working days not doing your job and doing a Cats presentation instead, yeah. and you present it twice. And, and then no what do you do with it? Again. You know? <laughs> If anyone is doing a conference on cats, come up, please. Know, please. It's a great presentation. It's so <laughs> thorough. It's so interesting. Anyway. So sad that we're not here to anyway. talk about cats today. Oh, maybe really you know, Wuthering up. Heights cats mash up somehow and make it somehow. work. I think there's similarities, honestly. Like you have a cat that's thrown in at the deep end among some other cats that don't like it. And it's true. You know, nefarious things happen. It's the ultimate outsider novel. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Hannah, I'm looking forward to that paper that you write, <laughs> and I hope that you circulate that one as well. I'm going to add a couple more slides. <laughs> so today we are here to talk about Emily, 
and Wuthering Heights. But if you have somehow made it through like five years of this podcast without knowing who Emily Bronte is or what this book is even about, then we are just going to give you like the briefest of summaries mined from the Internet, basically. So here we go. Emily Jane Bronte was born on July 30th in 1818. Um, The most interesting thing about this is uh, to me, to me only probably, and Rachel Fader, is that she is a Leo. And according to astrology.com, Leos are dramatic, creative, self-confident, dominant, and extremely difficult to resist. So I feel like that tracks. Emily is a really intriguing figure, and we've talked about her quite a bit on the show. I recommend starting with the Understanding Emily panel from the Bronte Parsonage if you really want to dive in and learn more about her. You can find that in our archives in Season 3, Episodes 4 and 5. Now, Wuthering Heights was published in 1847 under the pen name Ellis Bell, and it concerns two families of the landed gentry living on the West Yorkshire Moors, the Earnshaws and the Lintons, and their turbulent relationships with Earnshaw's foster son, Heathcliff. Mr Lockwood and Nellie Dean, who do not belong to either of these families, relate the story of the foundling Heathcliff's arrival at Wuthering Heights and the close-knit bond he forms with his benefactor's daughter, Catherine Earnshaw. One in spirit, they are nonetheless social unequals and the saga of frustrated yearning and destruction that follows Catherine's refusal to marry Heathcliff is unique in the English canon. The novel is admired not least for the power of its imagery, its complex structure and its ambiguity, the very elements that confounded its first critics. And it still confounds the people, does it not? It confounds me. (laughs) It really does. I, I think I like that idea of it because... It's not a simple novel to understand. I, I really don't like any interpretation that tries to look through one particular lens. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many things going on. There's obviously the racial dynamic uh, with Heathcliff being something that is not at least mostly white. You know, he, he, he's mm-hmm. from some other country. Um, Nellie mentions that he might be descended from an Indian king or a Chinese ruler or something like that. He also is compared, you know, constantly to the devil. So there's something else going on there. But then you also have the class situation, um, the gentry families. He has no family. He has no inheritance. Um, And then you also have the gender issues in the novel, um, as well as rural versus urban. It's just there's it's such a rich text. You can come to it from many different angles. But I just tend to distrust interpretations that go with one or the other of them instead of looking at how complicated the novel is, actually. Instead of saying the greatest tragic love story of all time. <laughs> yes. Because many of the I, covers do. I don't know if you can exactly read it as a love story. I think there's mm-hmm. just so much there. Um, it reminds me of that, you know, saying that love is very similar to hate. And I think that is definitely at play at Wuthering Heights. I think it gives it its... Um, it gives it its interest because it it kind of, I think, goes to a depth of human feeling that is almost disturbing to read. Um, my students either love it or they hate it. Mm-hmm. I've had students who are just like, why are you having us read about these two dysfunctional people? And I'm like, you know, you have a point. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what to say about this. Neither one of these people is a role model, which I think is what we go to, to fiction for sometimes. Um, 
it's just kind of, um, you know, a mess. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the novel. It's relatable to some people, but it's also very frustrating because of um, how hopeless and how depressing and devastating I think some aspects of the story can be because it does I think fundamentally deal with the question of of justice and injustice and Mm -hmm. who's in and who's out of a social system um and then of course what happens when someone who's outside the social system decides to wreck it or to take advantage of it I think that mess too that you're talking of is why it's so attractive for people to adapt and I think when people go to adapt it um, it's because of the drama of it, especially Heathcliff, especially the male part. Like it's almost like Hamlet where you yeah. can just like go for it on stage or on screen with that role. Yeah. And, um, but that means it sort of like sucks up that, you know, that love story or that drama sort of sucks up all the air in the room in terms of adaptation. And I think that maybe that's yeah. why people sort of want to read it as a love story because that's really what the adaptations sort of right. revolve around. Yeah. I, I think it's so spooky. It's such a horror story to me. It was really like yeah. just, I would like to see an adaptation which doesn't just kind of gloss over, oh, they've got a fever. That's why they're seeing ghosts at the window. I want to <laughs> see the ghosts. I want to see the little hand. <laughs> I know. You know, the like yeah. make it scary. Yeah. Let's have go all the lights horror. go out. Like just make it a horror. And like all of the childhood stuff where it's all nice and they're getting on, like horror has light moments. It's how you create yeah. tension, right? And so mm-hmm. it's interesting that yeah, the love story, uh you always end up sacrificing some of the supernatural elements of it so mm-hmm. that the love story comes across more clearly. Whereas I think the like because there is a love story in it right it's not romantic it's not mm-hmm. an i like an ideal love or anything like that but there is a relationship that kind of goes through the narrative and i think that you could explore it way more interestingly if you just were like let's scare the shit out of people <laughs> <laughs> well and then I- there's kissing sometimes yeah. you know but like make it really scary like doesn't he yeah. have sex with her when she's dead that's the thing, right? That's that's um, a horror you, story. You sort of get you get that vibe, I think. Oh, sorry, um, just the vibe of it. Just the vibe. the vibe of it. That's I, still scary. Well, I, it, Emily brings this idea of the incorruptible body, as though we're dealing with Roman Catholicism and saints or something. You know, he 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 goes to the churchyard, um, has her coffin opened on the side, I think, and sees that her face hasn't changed in years, mm. um, which I think the Thomas Hardy adaptation did some interesting things with that where if memory serves you can definitely tell she's changed but he can't see it you know which I thought was kind of interesting um but yeah there's there's that disgusting element I've actually this is not what I want to talk about today but I've actually found that Charlotte and Emily were both influenced by an author named Frederick Mansell Reynolds um who we nowadays would probably say had Um, some kind of maybe mood disorder or something like that but he channeled that into his writings and he wrote a novel called Miserimus and the Parricide um, which were very influential and another called The Coquette which I think was um, a source text for Jane Eyre the scene with the tree the chestnut tree being split down the middle that is lifted almost from his book Um, but anyway Miserimus is the story of a man who marries a woman while kind of like hating her on purpose. Mm -hmm. So he marries her to torture her. Um, 
it has the scene where Kathy, you know, is upstairs in Wuthering Heights and she's having this sort of meltdown, but looking outside and, and, you know, being sort of wishing that she was outside with nature and back in her childhood, that scene is almost recognizable in that book. So, I mean, some of these things were taken from his stories. Um, the Parasite has this, um, this narrator, he gets engaged to this woman and his father says, you can't marry her. So he grabs her pet lamb, like rips it to pieces and throws it against the wall and then strangles his fiance with his blood stained hands. And that's not even the worst part of the story. Later on, he decides to kill his father. So he gets a hatchet and goes in there to kill his father. And his father takes the hatchet and cuts his hand off and is like, ha ha. And then later on, he comes back to actually try to kill his father again. And I think his dad takes off another limb and he finally kills his father. And it's just this, you know, it makes Heathcliff look like a very nice civilized sort of chap. But I think one thing it made me think about when I was studying that was how what we might resent about Heathcliff and Kathy is their selfishness. It's this kind of romantic era indulgence of feeling that I think the Victorians were starting to turn away from. It was already kind of dated um, but you know, you, you soak yourself up in your desires and you just absolutely want something and you're, you're willing to destroy the whole world to get it. People do have problems with like characters that they see as selfish though. It, that really yeah. does get under people's skin. I noticed that when we do our read alongs, just thinking back to like wives and daughters. Yeah. That was, Mansfield like, Park with Mary or, Crawford. She, yeah. No, she gets a, a hard time, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love and she's not doing her. anything like wrong. No, <laughs> she's not killing people with axes. <laughs> no, it's just it's just she's not maintaining the social status quo, mm-hmm. and I think it can be very gendered sometimes. I've noticed it's clear cut when someone has a child. For example, if Kathy had actually given birth to her child, I think at that point there would be even more of outrage against her for not, you know, focusing on her duty. Um, but there still is that kind of irritation. You know, she's married. She has a family. Why is she doing this? Um, and I think I think Heathcliff gets a lot more sympathy than Kathy for that reason, because Kathy already has so many social obligations that are locked in. Whereas mm-hmm. Heathcliff, Heathcliff is rich at that point, but he's still a free agent. And the I think the sense is that he's been treated badly by Kathy until he starts destroying everything. So Mm -hmm. most of my students get furious after that point in the novel with Heathcliff. Before that, they're all on his side. And then it's just like, what are you doing? You're perpetrating the same trauma all over again on the next generation. Yes. Yes. That's what you're doing. (laughs) And that's the point. Hear me out. Classic (laughs) horror films, right? Mm -hmm. There's always the bit where they think they've gotten out of the cave or they're not haunted anymore. And then it happens again. Yeah. And that's Wuthering Heights. That is Wuthering Heights. And I, I just know it, you know, I think the thing that makes me laugh about the end of Wuthering Heights is it seems like this fresh start, which I think is overshadowed by the visit to the graves and the idea of the ghost still existing. And the fact that maybe they're quiet, maybe they're not. But I always think, ha, they haven't procreated yet. The next generation, <laughs> they're, just, they're just starting out as a, you know, they're not even a, a couple yet. Um, and once they are, once the next little Kathy and Heathcliff are made or the second generation of the Earnshaws and you know it's gonna be it's gonna be back to the excitement all over again what do you like what do you think works well in the book like you know it's a a big question to ask is like why has it endured but I'm like why are people so like 
obsessed with it still what's Um, working for it well i think something that worked in the at the time was the yorkshire dialect and the description of the surroundings i think the description of the way things look and how beautiful you know the the how rugged the mountainside is and everything you know the the crags and everything i think that still works the dialect is a barrier though for a lot of my students to understand at the time though it was exotic it was very much like sir walter scott you know his scottish um his scottish characters and um that kind of obsession or growing obsession with things that were celtic usually not really celtic but this idea of this mystical scottish past and i think that really worked um having it be in england but close enough to scotland for it to be other in some kind of way um that really i think drew people in in a way that um setting it in you know somerset might not have <laughs> quite done with sure. apologies to people from somerset but you know um <laughs> but anyway <laughs> But anyway, yes, I think um, I think that worked. One thing that still works today, I think, is the um, the depiction of um, I think Heathcliff is very specific about how much he's suffered, and he vocalizes that in a way that I think not many Victorian characters do in such explicit terms. He's very open about what he's feeling, why he's feeling that way, and why he wants revenge. Um, it's quite remarkable, and I think we don't question it as much because he is not he's not within the culture so it's something that we just sort of accept is like oh he's different so this is why he does this um I always think about the devil kind of when he talks like that which I think is speaking to my own exposure to other kinds of literature where I'm not seeing him as being as unique a character as he actually is um within the story but he um he's very open he's very intelligible and until I read Tilney Hall I hadn't really seen a protagonist especially one who was a person of color who was that clear and communicative um and forthright so I think that's kind of part of his enduring appeal Kathy don't like her I still don't (laughs) she's very uh, (laughs) yeah not a fan She's, she's very she, I don't know. I think she, I think it's because I don't like that. She wants to have it both ways without mm. considering Heathcliff's feelings. That's one way that I read her. Or her she's husband. Kind of, whatever her husband. name is. Who I forgot. Yeah, um, Edgar Linton. Yeah. She, yeah. she also, she also turns it on Heathcliff and says basically that you're the reason why I'm dying. I feel like, you know, and he's like, you did this to yourself basically that, you know, I, I think that is, is very true. Um, she kind of projects the, the pain that she, causes to other people back onto herself um i think is kind of one of my readings it might be uncharitable but i've always just kind of been irritated with kathy not just because of nelly just because of i think what she does and what she doesn't do that gets to me hannah i know you're not team bronte but is there something that you find interesting or attractive about wuthering heights yeah i really still like the applesauce um scene the moment mm-hmm. with that um whenever i listen to my audio i listen to the wuthering heights audiobook that i have all the time to try and like oh. get it and i don't get it i don't get it and like i've seen mm. i saw that really recent wuthering heights stage adaptation and i was like it's fine yeah. and the andrea arnold film um mm. what are some things i like i like the little ghost i like the guy who tells the story at the beginning <laughs> um, <laughs> mr yeah. lockwood 
like I really like Nellie Dean I really like the narration of it and I really like being told a ghost story and when I think about it like that I'm like oh I'm being told this like scary story and Mm. the fact that like you know you're coming in from a dark night and you go into a house and all of these things are happening and like this is the story that's recounted to you and it's like horrific (laughs) so I really (laughs) yeah so I really like that element of it I think maybe my issue with it is the adaptations yeah. I, I I have never seen an adaptation that central well, let's say the centered um Lockwood and Nellie Dean. And I think that's what it's missing. I would love to see an adaptation where they say something like just something horrendous that happened and then it just shoots to Lockwood's face of what? Because mm-hmm. I think that is something that we get in the book when we're reading through it, at least that sense, you know, I always just think of this dandy from London just sitting there going, who are these people? Where did I come from my holiday? Yeah. <laughs> this is not what I was planning on doing. That, that national theatre one and- that um, they do, that Lockwood is like a big character in that and Nellie Dean becomes right. like the more character. So it is worth watching that one, definitely. So earlier and off mic, we were having these discussions about Charlotte and um, the fact that she's not a big fan of Wuthering Heights, or at least said she wasn't a big fan after Emily's death. Um, And I'm just kind of wondering, do you think that one of the reasons why she didn't like the novel was because Heathcliff is not redeemed at the end? Yeah, I, I do know she said after the fact i think it was in a letter um or no no it might have been in the preface the 1850 preface but she said that she was very taken aback by weathering heights in particular and she couldn't sleep at night after reading it and was just you know trembling and having this very you know physical reaction to it and so then she came downstairs the next morning i think and told um emily this is just horrible how are you writing this and this is terrifying and Emily basically was like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) This is not a big deal. And so it seemed like Charlotte was the one taking it so seriously. And Emily is just like, what? Everyone does this. Um, (laughs) Have you not read the other books that are being published right now that have people strangling young lambs kind of situation? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's true. Um, I don't know if that is actually what happened because this is Charlotte speaking after her sister's death. she has reasons for trying to portray them as not knowing what they're doing when they're writing things right. like this. Um, because, you know, there's the insinuation that they're writing from life. So have these women been screwing around? You know, are they in violent scenes like this all the time? Are they even middle-class? You know, this kind of thing. Um, but I do think that Charlotte, there's something about Emily's writing that Charlotte couldn't imitate. I think everyone kind of understands this about their relationship. There's something about Emily that, Charlotte just couldn't control, couldn't understand. And I think it mm-hmm. did maybe frighten her a bit, um, not having a story that concludes maybe the way Charlotte would have. Yeah, that um, that makes me think of my favorite review of Wuthering Heights from Virginia Woolf, who says that like Wuthering Heights is a more difficult book to understand than Jane Eyre because Emily yeah. was a greater poet than Charlotte. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, that's the thing that besides the structure, which you guys have brought up and the horror of the book, it's like the poetry of the book, which I don't think, which is why I don't think any adaptation can really do it justice because it is about yeah. like the pleasure of the words mm. on the yes. page for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think Emily was so much better with 
words, with word choice. Um, even when Charlotte edits her poems, Charlotte actually ruins <laughs> the the meters yeah. of some of these lines. She doesn't know what she's doing. Um, I think Charlotte was a better structural novelist than Emily. Um, mm -hmm. I think she, especially by the time she gets to Villette, she's becoming a master at writing a novel that I think in a way is as almost as powerful as Wuthering Heights. I think Villette is more melancholy, but it is very gripping. It's hard. You feel like you're in a dream when you read it sometimes. Um, but she's not Emily. She does not have that raw um, primal power, I think, using words to actually make you see the images on the page. Mm -hmm. so. There's oh, no lines from Villette that I want to get tattooed on my arm. No, I that's think true. that's how I'll put it. No, you know, it well, I can't stand Villette, right? But there is that bit <laughs> in uh, I just I'm so not Team Bronte. I'm like Team Anne Bronte, but um, there is this great bit in Villette where she's um, she, what does she? She puts the letters from, is his name John? They're always called John, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, John, John Breton, who is the- His name is John. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. She puts, I think she puts her letters from him in a jar and then like puts the jar in the tree stump Under and then like the covers tree, it yeah. in concrete and like, <laughs> and I think about that all the time. And I actually told my therapist <laughs> about this sad poem when I was in my, when we read Villette, I like wrote a little poem in my diary and it was like, I wanted to bury you in the tree, but you never gave me anything to put there or like something like that. And like, that was the bit from the letter. It was like holding on to you. Sorry, that that's too sweet. revealing. So you have to cut that no. out, but <laughs> terrible. But that's, yeah, that's what I think about with Villette. I'm like, damn, that poem I wrote in my diary. <laughs> well, I think, I think Villette for me is such a deep, um, it's a deep book because it speaks to, um, being it's it's it, it's like a more european persuasion except i think without the happy ending um you're left behind you don't have a place you're mm -hmm. you don't matter you're not um you're not in the the cycles of life you're not getting married you're not having children you don't have any benchmarks for age you know, like, what have you achieved? Who are you? You're even in a strange country. You have no fixed identity. And I think that is what is really beautiful about that. It's, it's basically the horror of being British in Europe. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think it does it beautifully, almost in a very French way in some ways. Someone it's should write a post-Brexit Villette, like an adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> being That's British in Europe, post-Brexit with... <laughs> No resources whatsoever. <laughs> an outsider, an outcast. I love it. <laughs> I feel like you guys also just des like described the new Florence and the Machine album. It's like the first. <laughs> yeah. I do. I've yeah. got like a really annoying question though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. for, for both of you, Lauren and Lydia. So obviously this season we've been doing like race and literature. And with Heathcliff, it's like really obvious why we would include this book mm -hmm. in there but I'm just interested like a lot of the narratives that we've been reading for this season have been like written by women with like female characters or it's a very female driven narrative and I was just wondering if you think Heathcliff being written as a male character like changes the relationship with him as a person of color as opposed to if they if Emily had written like Kathy 
as a woman of color and Heathcliff was like in the family like how do you think that would have impacted the novel does that make sense yes it does um do you want to go first Lauren I have some thoughts well I think actually like so I kind of want to discuss this when we discuss the half cast because I feel like you there's some similarities there. Mm-hmm. Like I do like when I was reading the half cast, I was like, oh, this might be interesting. This is like maybe one road they would take if Heathcliff was a woman, except Heathcliff doesn't have as a child that massive fortune or any, you know, anything to be sort of manipulated or anything like that. Well, I also I'm going to bring up Tilney Hall at this point a little bit because mm-hmm. It does both. And that's what I think is very interesting. Tony Hall was published in 1834 by the poet Thomas Hood. And in his own time period, he was um, he was very well known. He edited several comic periodicals. He would write a lot of poetry. A lot of it was very comedic. Um, but some of it was also about social injustices and issues like that. So he knew um, Dickens. He was a bit older than Dickens, but he was kind of, you know, familiar with that rising generation of Victorian novelists. Um, Tilney Hall is a three volume novel that was published in 1834 by Thomas Hood. He was a poet in the generation, you could say before Charles Dickens and those other novelists. So he knew them, he was friendly with them. Um, they collaborated on a few things you know, he would publish things by them in certain periodicals he edited. Um, but he was most known for his comic poetry, his serious poetry about social issues. And he just w- published one novel, which was this Tilney Hall. Um, so what is interesting about this book to me in light of Wuthering Heights is that it has um, a biracial main character. Um, so his nickname is St. Kitts based on where he came from. Um, so he's, you know, basically... West Indies. Um, he comes over to England when his father is dying, his white father. So they're at this inn. And then his uncle, um, his uncle is um, uh, a baronet, Sir Mark Tyrell. So the uncle comes to the inn to see this dying brother and finds out that the child that his brother brought back is, um, as he calls him, a brown bastard. And then these, the child gets furious when he hears this. And so the uncle walks it back and is like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. Like a horse of any color is as good. You know, and it was just, it's just this very, um, very strange situation. So he grows up at this ancestral home, uh, Tilney Hall, with uh, Ringwood, who is the eldest. And I always think of him as ringworm. So that's kind of a problem <laughs> for me when I'm trying to talk yeah. about this. <laughs> but Ringwood is a bastard and um, not really, but he, he is. Um, and then there's Ra- there's Raby. I don't really know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Raby is the, um, he's like a bookworm. He doesn't really have anything to do with, um, he's not mean. He doesn't say anything racist. Ringwood does. And Ringwood names his horse Brown Bastard, which, you know, <laughs> connection there. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have actually the scene, uh, there's a scene in Wuthering Heights where um Hindley and Heathcliff fight over horses because Heathcliff wants Hindley's horse. And then Hindley strikes Heathcliff, but Heathcliff ends up kind of winning out. Um, and so what's interesting to me is these two, um, St. Kitts, whose real name is um, Walter, and Ringwood come to blows over these horses. And they're always competing and fighting over them. And so I think it's interesting looking at the Wuthering Heights story in light of that, because the horse really is a symbol of your 
gentility as a gentleman. You have your own horse. It would be like having your own sports car or something like that. Mm. And so that's really what Heathcliff and Henley are fighting over. Heathcliff fight winning Henley's horse is saying, I want to be the heir. And that's very much what goes on in um, Tilney Hall. So this is a long answer, but for your question about the men and women, you know, whether having this character be male or female is important. If you're male, like Heathcliff or like uh, Walter, you have the chance to inherit or to gain an inheritance or to make your fortune in some way. If you're a woman, you have to marry into it or you have to usually have some kind of sexual relationship in order to achieve it. And so Walter eventually in Tilney Hall meets a woman named Indiana who is uh, black and she's just roaming around this area that was based on a suburb outside London, but kind of seems like it's set in the wilds of some part of England. And she starts getting to know him and kind of inspires him to fight back against his family and their racism and encourages him to basically take everything from them for his revenge, for the way he's treated because of his race. So she refers to the white people as Bakra, which is the term from the West Indies for white people. Um, and she basically was his, wife, his father's wife, um, but it seems like they weren't married. She forges a marriage certificate. So her life has been one of complete injustice and lack of power. People think she's you know, strolling around like an itinerant homeless woman because she has no agency, no money. Um, and in the end of the novel, she actually dresses herself up wearing her traditional clothing from the um, West Indies and puts on all this jewelry and all these amazing things and says, now you're going to take me back to Tilney Hall because now you are the heir and I'm going to be your mother. And he basically says, that's not going to happen. I can't have you living with me as my mother and things fall apart from there. But I, I just think it's so interesting seeing that these males who are biracial are able to at least have some kind of station in society, even if they have to fight for it. The women, mm -hmm. no. Women, it's a lot harder unless you're marrying into some kind of wealth. Well, back it up and like, tell me how you found this text and then in relation to Wuthering Heights too, because this is really interesting. Right, so... I was actually just reading through books. Um, I'm doing a project where I'm trying to put all of the characters in 19th century English fiction in the novel. I'm trying to put them into a spreadsheet so that people can um, assign them in their courses. They can assign these books that have characters that aren't white in them. Because mm -hmm. you hear this so often, you hear people just say, yeah, I'd love to teach things in the, the Victorian novel that aren't white, but you know, there's Wuthering Heights and there's Vanity Fair and that's it. It's really not true. I have right now about 18 pages of my spreadsheet full with characters who are of African descent or something like that in the English novel. So I've been using certain keywords. Um, one of them I was using was the word Creole. And there's a lot of confusion about that. Um, we know that Bertha uh, Mason in Jane Eyre is a Creole. And for a while when I was in college, I believed that that was a word that was actually meant for people who were white, who lived in the, um, who were born in the West Indies. Um, it can be used that way, but it actually in the 19th century was most often used to describe someone who was biracial. So when people interpret Bertha as being you know, of African descent, she is, I'm pretty sure she is. And um, it would have been understood that way. So one of the words I've been using was Creole, and that was how I found this book. So I put in a date range in Google Books and in other databases like the Corby Collection 
and it pops and I can go through and see the different results. So this is one of them. And I started reading through it and I just couldn't believe as I read it, how similar it was to Wuthering Heights. Um, his, his revenge against these people, his murderous rage towards the air. Um, he ends up becoming actually the heir. He becomes Sir Walter Tyrell at one point. And that is just not what you would expect in a book like this. You know, you have a, a black baronet basically in, mm-hmm. in, in Great Britain. Um, and it seems like he's going to win. He even gets his fiance, Grace Rivers. And it seems as though, um, sorry, Rabies, uh, fiance, Grace Rivers. And it seems as though he's going to have everything. Um, but then you have this English squire who takes it upon himself to sort of defend the family's honor, but there's definitely a racial component to this, um, mm-hmm. getting rid of this person who thinks that they can become part of the gentry. Um, so I wasn't looking for Wuthering Heights. <laughs> it just was mm-hmm. one of the things as I was reading through, I was like, oh my goodness, there's no way that this was not at least something of an influence just in the idea of this um this black man having revenge on a gentry family who treat him badly after adopting him and Mm -hmm. treating him like one of the family, but not really. Um, So yeah, that, that has been kind of how I've approached this. And I'm just, I'm not saying that this was something that, you know, Emily couldn't have written Wuthering Heights without this book, but I think it shows how Wuthering Heights might not have been seen as so strange at the time for people who had read Hood's novel. It would have been seen maybe as a slight tweak to that, that idea that had already been portrayed by Hood. Um, I think it's interesting that Hood wrote this book right after the Slavery Abolition Act was passed in 1833. And you know, so he, he'd been drafting it for a while, but he published it the year right after that. And so for people reading this, there's that fear of free black people sort of counter invading Great Britain and coming to Great Britain and taking over the social structure um, a fear that the Victorians sort of meet with that, you know, social Darwinism. And, um, and I think that would be something that Emily might have been tuned into, at least if she had encountered Hood's novel or heard of it. I'm pretty sure she read it, though. I love that you brought that up, too, because I think that is exactly what's happening in a short story that we're going to talk about next week, which is yeah. Two Brothers or also called Contraband by Louisa Mm -hmm. May Alcott. And it's written uh, about the American Civil War and like two brothers on sort of opposite sides of the war, one black, one white. And it's the same, I think, panic, right? It's the same, it's the same thing. But specifically the other, the other story that we're talking about next week, Halfcast is uh, the fear that British people had about um, Eurasians coming over, like specifically the children of, white British men marrying um, like Indian women and then they would yeah. come to the UK and there was like, yeah, a panic about it. Yeah. You know? Well, there's actually a section. Um, it's a sh- short excerpt that I would like to read to you if you have mm-hmm. a minute from Tilney yeah. the whole. So this is, um, this is what Walter says. He has, he has these soliloquies very much like Heathcliff does. And he's trying, it's very, um, it's very Shylockian in a way. He's trying to understand why he doesn't matter as much in this culture that he's in. Why is he considered less? So he says, um, thousands are no more legitimate than I am. Men of rank and station. What is legitimacy? A parson, a certificate, a ring. Is there a stain on me from the womb? A stain like original sin because my parents were not married? 
Am I doomed to infamy and disgrace for want of a mere form? Has it made me less virtuous, less sightly, less intellectual? Has it made me deformed in person or deficient to the sense? And shall man affix a stigma where heaven has set no mark? Is not my flesh as healthy, my blood as pure, my body as perfect in all its functions? I, as that of Ringwood himself? But no, 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 this flattering unction will not do. Walter Tyrell, you are a degraded being, and it avails you nothing that there are thousands under the same ban with yourself. Um, he moves down to talk about um, what, you know, basically, am I not stamped with a brand, an everlasting brand, never to be effaced by time, never to be re removed by honorable achievement. And then he says, no, no, a bastard I am and must remain. And worst of all, a brown bastard. I, that was the word. There's a stain on my face as well as on my birth, a tinge derived from the blood of, and he uses the better form of the N-word, um, black heathens and the word chokes me slaves. So he's aware that he has two problems. One of them is he's illegitimate. And the other one is he is of African descent and he's being treated badly because of this. And so that sort of sets up his, um, his meeting when he, the next thing he meets is actually, he doesn't know it, but he meets his mother. And it's almost like the perfect moment for him to start hearing about his rights and about the ability he might have to take over in the family and sort of take advantage of the patriarchal system of inheritance and become the actual baronet, despite these two stigmas against him. Um, but it's a very powerful book because I think it just kind of, it comes out and says a lot of things about these fears. I will say that I don't think that Hood was wholly, I mean, it's strange. He writes this character in a way that makes you sympathize with him, but I don't really think that he, um, I don't think he was what we would want him to be in terms of race. Uh, it wasn't until 1838 that he started questioning the injustice of how black apprentices were treated. And before that, he wrote quite a few racist poems um, and, and had some illustrations accompanying it that were not very funny, but back then probably were calculated to make people kind of mock um, black people. So it's it's interesting to me, like trying to to figure out what he's doing with this novel, because I don't think it's, I think it's clear with Emily even compared to what Hood is doing by making is, such is a- Is Hood cashing in? Is it a commercial decision? I would say that, except that it took so long for him to write the yeah. book. It was, about, <laughs> it, was about, it was about six years of drafting, but I do know that when it was published, he was hoping for it to be a success and it was, it caused a lot of controversy. A lot of the reviews don't mention the racial element at all or they try to avoid it or they kind of insinuate that's interesting because mm, yeah that's like so much of the book yeah um, um there's a regency blog called wicked william and they have um this one this blog post is by greg roberts but it basically uh goes over different books from the regency period or thereafter and it kind of uh, reviews them and I, it's very very useful so this blog post was called a review of tilney hall by thomas hood and it was published in 2015 and so Greg Roberts, Roberts read this book and sort of goes through and, and describes the um, the general overview. And I think it provides a nice little historical assessment of what's going on here and how how unusual this book seems to be, at least to us now, um, mm -hmm. and maybe even in its own time and the way it describes Black culture in Georgian Britain. Um, I do disagree with some of the assessment. I think that some of the um, some of the allusions to, for example, the word bakra might not have been picked up on by this reviewer because they might not know what that terminology meant. It's also a three volume book. So 
doing mm-hmm. a close reading of a three volume book is, is quite, it's, it's quite a lot. And I think one reason, I think a lot of these books that I'm finding have been obscure is because they're so damn long. I mean, it's three volumes mm-hmm. long. No one mm-hmm. wants to sit there. And each one of these volumes is about three or 400 pages. So they had the patience back then, especially when you go to the library and you get the circulating library and you get one novel, um, not one novel, one volume of a novel. And then you return it and you get the next one. Then you return and get the next one. You know, they're not reading them all at once usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we nowadays, we don't really have the patience to to sit down and go through this whole monstrosity. But it is a fascinating book, I think, at least in showing us that Wuthering Heights wasn't, it wasn't an isolated incident. People were noticing right. this kind of historical development and thinking about what it might mean for British society if um if people of african descent became part of the gentry part of the ruling classes well there's so many people that push back on this idea that heathcliff was a person of color and that like they go also they use like charlotte's words to really justify things like oh these were isolated women who didn't know anything about you know people of color they probably had never seen one they had never heard of this that is but not true Uh, um, Charlotte actually wrote in a letter to Ellen Nussie, I think, um, that she'd had dinner at at some school and the, that the serving man had been black. Um, and she remarked on it. So it probably wasn't something that, you know, she didn't see someone who was black every day, but Mm -hmm. it also wasn't impossible. I mean, (laughs) she wasn't just like, oh my goodness, this is the first person I've ever seen like this. It was just more of a casual thing. Um, the more I've been researching, the more I've realized how many people of color were in Georgian Britain and Victorian Britain. Um, and, you know, sometimes it would be maybe second or third generation and people would probably become more and more biracial as things continued. You know, there'd be probably mm-hmm. intermarriage with white people more often, but it would not have been, it wouldn't have been fantastic or unusual, This, especially living in the north of England, where I'm beginning to think that many people who had children of color would send them to the north to be educated as opposed to the south, which was closer to London. And they may not want people knowing about the children that they had, especially, you know, if they wanted to make connections or marry, you know, a woman who is in the upper classes, you probably don't want to tell them about your colonial family, um, especially after, after the, um, you know, the acts began to abolish slavery gradually but you know yeah that's pretty much the plot of the half cast as well right send the you know send the daughter to yorkshire and then uh she holidays in ireland Mm -hmm. and it's like a really dreary part of the country it's like not Mm -hmm. it's like oh go and take in the sea and not bright the governess (laughs) is like why have we come to this like really remote part of island this is so strange and it's like mm-hmm. oh because you're trying to keep this young lady out of society yes yeah. yes so i think in some ways having a child of color in high society and try or any society really and trying to sort of have them be accepted it might have been seen by some people as a sign of poor taste uh, for many different reasons and so that becomes the problem, I think, because you're not thinking about that person's feelings whatsoever. It becomes, how does this, how is this going to be negotiated in Britain among white people, mm-hmm. as opposed to what about this person yeah. who is British and deserves to live a full life, you know, and is, is sort of being kept like this, the shameful secret of imperialism somewhere else. Um, 
And so I think that some of these books are defiant in a certain way, regardless of the motivation. Hood having a character who is so visibly and you know passionately who they are, and um, you know Emily having her character be larger than life, it's it's very much pushing back against that invisibility, um, mm-hmm. with all the rage with it, <laughs> of course. But you know they're refusing to remain um, to remain invisible and isolated. So the conversation on slavery was actually started in the U.S. Someone sent a letter over to Britain that basically said, hey, if slavery is wrong in the Bible, why is it not wrong now? And this was like around the you know, 1700s. So it started really early. But by the end of that century, people like Thomas Clarkson, you know, that first generation of anti-slavery activists, um, they're pushing very hard for abolition. They have the don't don't drink you know, don't, don't eat sugar in your tea, you know, mount a resistance, wear your badge, all this stuff. Um, by the 1830s, especially after the abolition in the West Indies, people start turning against that generation. It becomes less of a problem. It becomes more of a problem sustaining the empire against savagery and promoting civilization and Christianity. But let's say between 1800 and 1830, there is a very lively anti-slavery debate going on, but it's occurring in periodicals, which we don't really read anymore. For one thing, there's so many articles that we don't understand. It's very up to date. It would be like reading blog posts or Twitter posts from something that, or Reddit posts maybe is a better analogy that happened like 10 years ago. It's going to be interesting to you if you remember what went on then, but it's just not something that applies to today's Mm -hmm. cultural debates. So I've actually found a lot of debate and argumentation in, um, periodicals. It's how Carlisle and um, John Stuart Mills had their famous fight over the merits of slavery. Stuart Mills is like, why are you assuming that Black people are made to carry on the work of civilization? Why are they made to be like (laughs) the laborers out in the fields? You know, you are racist, sir. You know, and Carlisle's like, no, I'm not, you know, but that all happened in periodicals. So now that a lot of these have been digitized, I'm having to go back through them and read all these stories, all these essays, a lot of the stories I'm finding, they have black characters who have money, who are living in the UK, who are British to all intents and purposes. Um, and it's not seen as, as such a strange thing. It's just very common. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, it, I think after that point, after the, the abolition in the, in the West Indies, I think there was a somewhat conscious effort not to include characters like that in novels. They're still there, but it's always, it, it tends to mostly be novels that are set in other places in the world, like Africa, where you would expect to find people who are Black. Um, there are exceptions to this, of course, but I think there's less casual inclusion, if you can even say it was casual to begin with. But I mean, it's, it's a mm-hmm. lot less likely that you're just going to have in a story about something else, someone who's of a different race, who isn't treated as a as an evil character. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's what I'm finding. But again, I'm still working on all of this and it's, it's, um, it's slow work. I'm having to use what my students and I call racist search terms as well, because um, as you say, Lauren, I feel like the conversation around race in the U S was always kind of blatantly mentioned and it was out there Um, in Britain. People tend to use other words to clue you into it. For example, Brown, or, you know, some of the ones I mentioned before, one of the phrases I found was, and this is very unpleasant, but, um, a touch of the tar brush. 
So Mm -hmm. if they're mentioning somebody who is from, you know, of African ancestry. So I'm having to use those whenever I work with my students on this kind of thing, we actually have a whole class session where we talk about using these words, because I don't want to just be like, Hey, you should use all of these ones. You know, for me, it's like, don't do this project. If this is so painful, you know, like I don't, I wish this wasn't the way it is, but if you're working with primary sources, this is how we find them. And then mm-hmm. this is how we talk about, you know, and, and, and process them, but it's still, it's something I'm very worried about because it's just not a pleasant thing to do, even if you're trying to, to learn from the past in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I am finally finished with this, I'm going to be seeking counsel from many people before I know what to do with it or how to put it on the internet, um, on a website, maybe like, um, one more voice, which looks at some of these things or, um, undisciplining the Victorian classroom, which is a new Mm -hmm. project that has come out, which has a lot of resources like this. So hopefully it would be used in a classroom with a very engaged and, um, an aware conversation around it. One of the things that I've been thinking about during our conversation is that like, so a lot of people don't see the race in Wuthering Heights because, um, I mean, I think for a lot of people, like defaulting to white is like mm-hmm. a very strong instinct, yeah. right? Yeah. But then also because they feel like Emily's not addressing it. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if Amer- if Emily was an American writer, I feel like she'd be addressing it in a different yeah. way. But because she's British... And also because she's Emily Bronte, she's not addressing a lot of things directly. There's a lot of information <laughs> like that we just don't have in Wuthering yes. Heights. Like, how did he make his money? Like, I have questions about Heathcliff's backstory. But um, what she is very careful about in the book is like him being othered. Like, that's very clear from like page one, the way that people yeah. are referring to his looks and his possible parentage and calling him yeah. what a little less Lascar, which is yeah. that a slur? Is it a, it sounds it, um, like a slur? It, it, it is and it isn't. So it was actually, um, it refers to people who are of South Asian ancestry. In many mm-hmm. cases, they would also have been called black because okay. it, it was a word that I think, I think back then applied more generally to people with a darker skin tone than, than white. So I think some of these words re- were throwing around we're not using them in the way that they would have used them back then or understood them. Um, but yeah, I, I think one thing that might be also at play, um, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but a lot of the women who write novels about people of color, especially in the early part of the 19th century, the first half of it, they're Irish novelists. And Emily Bronte, I think, might have thought of herself as being not exactly English, but also Irish, being an outsider, um, following her father's, um, you know, her father was from Ireland and an immigrant to England. And um, we know that Charlotte spoke with an Irish accent for a large part of her life, um, maybe even until adulthood. And so I think she actually might think of herself as being an outsider, writing about an outsider. I think we forget how much the Irish were discriminated against at this point in history. They were considered to be less than human, subhuman. There's a famous, uh, even in the U.S., there's a famous Harper's Weekly um, magazine uh, spread that has the um, African here, and you know the African slave, obviously, and then over here the Irish labor, and it has them on mm-hmm. a pair of scales, and it's just you know appalling. But they were not the same. There were different forms of racial discrimination. And it would be a lot easier to be Irish in most societies back then than to be of African ancestry. There's no question about that. But there might have been more willingness 
to explore what that might be mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and less of a need to feel to uh, less of a need to kind of explain that that is different you know like oh <laughs> Heathcliff is an outsider because of his you know ancestry as an Irish person you would kind of assume maybe that your readers would get that without you being like you know here it is yeah, yeah. here it is I don't know I I, I would yeah. have to ask um you know maybe people now who are writing who, who are of all kinds of different cultures who write novels or books in the U.S. You know, do you ever feel like you're writing to an audience where you need to explain that? Or do you just assume it? Mm-hmm. Or do you consciously be like, learn this yourselves, assholes? Like, this is mm-hmm. this is not something I need to teach you. You need to be going out doing that work yourself. So I don't know exactly what was going through Emily's mind, but I do think that she um, maybe had more of an understanding of what it felt to be a cultural outsider um, if not a racial outsider, I would be a little cautious around saying that she sees herself as Heathcliff, but I think that there is definitely some kind of understanding there. Well, that's the thing that I think is really interesting about the British authors that kind of speaks to your question earlier, Lauren, just where it's like, what's the motivation, right? Yeah. And when I was asking about yeah. Hood, I'm like, what's the motivation with Emily Bronte? Because love it or loathe it, Uncle Tom's Cabin had a mission, right? And yeah. she took it straight to the bank and like people, yep. uh, you know, get getting all like rallied behind the cause. And mm-hmm. I think with some of the British writers, I'm like, what's like, is there a cause? Like, what's the what's the cause? I think that's really clear with the half cast, which we will talk about next week fully and we'll get into it. But then, yeah, with with Emily Bronte, it's like, I wonder if maybe that's why sometimes Heath Heathcliff's um otherness kind of disappears like you he's introduced and like his physical characteristics that set him apart are like very obvious in the first few chapters and then mm-hmm. they disappear because right. it's not it's like a mode of othering him rather yeah. than being the reason that she's writing the story whereas i think with some of the american authors that we're reading there is like a real purpose yeah. to why like the story yeah. that they're telling. And I think with Heathcliff, that's almost like, it kind of feels second, secondary to yeah. his story sometimes for me, but I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't I, know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I feel like this ties into something I've been actually wrestling with recently, which is, um, I read a review of a, a movie that came out recently where there was an interracial romance and the reviewer was arguing that more should have been made of them being from different races and there wasn't in this movie. Um, and that it was just odd that there wasn't much notice paid to this. And I, I started thinking about this because I was like, what, you know, without forgetting anything of the history and without sidelining the prejudices that doubtless exist <laughs> everywhere in our society every day. Um, when, are we going to have characters be more than their race? You know, there's that danger of mm-hmm. having a character show up and be different. And then that's their entire identity for mm-hmm. the whole thing. And I think one of the beauties of Weathering Heights is that you do have a character who is racially different and that is pointed out and that is a factor, but it's not the only factor mm-hmm. at play, either in his decision-making process or in the responses of other people to him. Because I mean, at one point in the novel, alcoholic Henley has Heathcliff living under his roof in his house basically owning everything he's got everyone in the town eating out of his hand because he has money he's in a perfectly poised situation to strike he marries Edgar Linton's sister I mean at that point he's he's almost there 
And there are other factors there, like the fact that he has money or the fact Mm -hmm. that he's well-spoken, the fact that he's got an education, the fact that he dresses like a gentleman. I mean, all of these things are part of his character and he's not just boiled down to, oh, this man isn't white, you know? Mm -hmm. For me, there's that tension, I think, between ignoring it completely and then making too much of it. And it's something Mm -hmm. that as an author myself who is, you know, white, I I would be so nervous, I think, about depicting... um, you know, if I was a novelist writing fiction, I, I would be very, very nervous about how to how to strike that right balance, how to ask other people for advice and that kind of thing, because I think it can be it can be bad depending on which way you go with it if you don't do it right. Yeah, I think I think we are like, yeah, that that's the other thing that I think people can't quite imagine. Like, how could he be a person of color if that's not the point of him? Yeah, <laughs> essentially, is like if that's not the point of this story, then yeah. <laughs> like, why is it important to the story? Um, I think there's a lot of and there's a lot of those questions now. Yeah. With contemporary fiction of people sort of defaulting certain characters to white, not sort of yeah, they don't realizing want that, like, yeah, race isn't the only defining characteristic. Yeah. I think it is. But I think it is interesting when you compare it to the American text where it is yeah. a defining characteristic. Yeah, right? totally. And so you've got totally. Emily making this conscious choice where she's just like, here it is. But there's a book that just came out. I need to read it. So I can't recommend it, obviously, since I haven't read it. But um, it's by Beth Palmer and a few other people. But it's about the 19th century reader. And I'm really looking forward to it because I think so often we forget the audiences that were these things were written for or the reasons for putting in. Like in Hood's case, I'm not comfortable with saying this about Emily Bronte, but I think in Hood's case, um, putting a character of color in his story was certainly a marketing strategy in some ways like yeah. oh mm-hmm. gothic you know this is a different kind of story and I think that the novel as people started writing novels there was a lot of competition and anxiety surrounding coming up with a new sort of device or story or mm-hmm. you know something that was innovative that didn't just copy what everyone else was doing um and so in that sense I think that um looking at the commodification of people of color is also something that I feel like I'll be able to explore more after I finished finding all of these sources, at least as many as I can, because I think once I see the overview, it makes a lot more sense to me about, you know, how these, these people appeared in novels, because we're talking about the novel, you know, why the novel was published, why people are reading it. And I think that in many cases, these people aren't being done justice to by white authors. Um, and it's not something that's being done like in the woman of color. I think you could make the argument for that novel um, drawing attention to the the situation, the unfair situation of black people who are used in England, but are fully conscious of the fact that people are trying to exploit them. And it's almost an argument for it's almost a Zionist sort of thing. It's an argument for them to return to their home and make something of it in the West Indies rather than trusting British whites to see their worth. You know, there's this mm-hmm. this kind of um, really fascinating conclusion to that book. Um, but compare that to Tilney Hall or another situation where the Caribbean menace is kind of raised, explored, and then put to rest in a very definitive way. And I don't think that anything terribly helpful is being done for race relations in the UK. Right. <laughs> this is this is more about entertainment in some cases. Um, 
even with Heathcliff, you have to be like, well, what was the point of that? Yeah. If you're mm-hmm. looking at it in a racial or a political way, what has been achieved by having the story of this person who won't repent, won't convert, dies. So I I will be interested to know what people do, especially over the next few decades as more and more of this literature comes out. Um, we're going to revisit texts like Wuthering Heights and we're going to have to look at them surrounded by all of this literature that was consumed at the same time. I think we mm-hmm. are we need to be over isolating the Brontes and saying that they mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on in their time period. But I think we also um we're also gonna learn a lot of new things and uh about other things that were published at the time and see, I think, a broader picture of why people of color were included in literature mm-hmm. and why not. Because I think that's the second part of that question. Now you're working on are you working on the Emily article right now? Yes. So this actually um, started out, it's a book project. It started out being called Emily Ronte and Popular Fiction. And mm-hmm. then I found that Charlotte was also using sources from popular fiction and that to some extent um, Anne was. Though so far I've seen that Anne was the most, um, I would say that she wrote most out of her own experiences compared to the other two. Like it, it's mm-hmm. kind of striking how deeply she's thought about what she went through in life and sort of the social issues surrounding governesses and that kind of thing. But um so it's now called The Brontes in Popular Fiction. And I have that chapter, that article um, about Charlotte coming out. So it is called Drafting Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte at the Circulating Library. And it will be published in the um, Victorian uh, Popular Fictions Journal next month, I think. So nice. we're, yeah, so we're, we're, we're down excited. the line. It's almost coming out. But one interesting thing I realized was that um, Charlotte wasn't in Haworth when she wrote Jane Eyre. And I've, I've just been so stupid. I've never thought of that. She wasn't in Haworth at all. Um, she was, I think she was in Manchester. Yeah, she's um, in Manchester. So she's surrounded by... Surrounded by circulating libraries. I charted the distances. Mm-hmm. She had like five or six within about a, a mile or two walk, which is nothing to a Bronte. So, I mean, she 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 was there on the spot and she just had a publisher's notice forward to her, which was like, you need to be writing for the circulating library readership. They actually told her that. And I have that in a letter she wrote to a critic. She explained why Jane Eyre had excitement and it was because her publisher said, the circulating library readership is your target audience. So she's writing for that audience. So that that was interesting to me because when I'm writing about Emily, I found about five or six source texts for Wuthering Heights. So I'm writing on um, Tilney Hall, obviously, but the one I'm working on right now is the, um, it's called the Memoirs of Signor Rossetti, um, sorry, Roselli, um, and that is, an 18th century source text. Everything else is 19th century. So I find that really interesting. Um, there's some missionary um, evangelical t- uh, tracks that she's kind of, um, I think, taking from. But in almost every one of the sources I found for Wuthering Heights, the character that's the Heathcliff character is a person of color or coded as a person of color. So she was, I think, being very conscious about making him um, other and I think she's also, she didn't think it was so strange because all these books she was reading had a character that was like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been useful for me reevaluating it. I'm not going into this and being like, none of this was original or, you know, for me, it's just interesting seeing how they incorporated these things they read 
possibly into their books. And, and they were also adjusting and sometimes even reversing the original moral of what they had read into their books. So you, you learn a lot more about them as people and as consumers of print culture at the time. Um, and so I've stopped really thinking of Emily standing up on a cliff with a cape behind her, like at a storm gathering, you know, I just think of her as kind of like a woman reading Twilight in the back kitchen before she has to cook. You know, she's just kind of a young woman reading all this literature from the circulating libraries and, and just kind of um, coming up with her own stories out of it and of, you know, based on other things. <laughs> but yeah. That really humanizes her and that makes it, it feels very modern. So so when your article is available, obviously you're going to put it all over the social medias. Yes, I will. <laughs> Where can people find you on the internet? So I am on Twitter. That's probably one of the easiest places to find me. So it's Lydia E. Craig. That's my handle. That's C-R-A-I-G. So I'm on Twitter. I try to be as active as possible. I also have a website, which is very poorly maintained, but it's just <laughs> www.lydiacraig.com. So sometimes I'll put up a list of my publications. Um, I also have, um, you know, I have a profile on academia.edu and I try to put up PDFs of what I've published so that people can read it. I think that the um, Victorian Popular Fictions Journal is open access. So Oh, that would be great. Yeah. That so cool. um, some of the some of the ones I've published in the past have been more accessible than others because of paywalls and so on. But I will put that all over social media and I'm hoping it will be one of the chapters in, in the book once I'm done with the manuscript. So I'm excited about this book. Thank you. It, it's definitely been my uh, pandemic project. <laughs> I've had a lot of time on my hands. I think we've all had that pandemic project. And for me, this just started out being like... Um, looking at the Gondol characters, their names, um, Augusta, Geraldine, Almeida. And I started with Almeida. So I was like, where did they get these names? You just can't come up with names like this. You know, where did mm -hmm. they come from? So I started tracking Almeida back. And that was when I found the first very obscure source. And it just kind of grew from there. It took me right back to Wuthering Heights. And I was like, okay, forget Gondol. <laughs> I'm going <gonna laughs> to figure out this stuff about Wuthering Heights. And, uh, and so that's where it started. And Hannah, where can people find us on the internet? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. And it's now available in Spanish as well. <laughs>